You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning, and please be seated. We have a, a good show for you today. And um, well, thank you for joining us once again. Um, our first guest is going to be a, a, a true internet pioneer and legend um, along the lines of the guest we had last week. Um, you know, we have with us Trevor Hughes, who's the, uh, the president of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, which is the um, largest association of privacy professionals in the world. And then in the second half hour, we're going to be talking about some of the latest developments that have been happening in the internet. And we're going to start a new development, a, a new regular um, feature um, called Five Essentials. Five Essential Things That You Should Know If You're Doing Business Online. And uh, each, each week, we'll try to cover a different topic. And so we're going to be talking about what you need to have in your um, legal toolkit. So we're going to start off. And then plus, one last item we'll be talking about. Um, the latest developments from France um, with respect to Facebook and Twitter. But without further ado, let me bring on Trevor Hughes, um, who many of you may know. He was the um, founder of the Network Advertising Initiative way back in um, 1999 and one of the first people to actually venture in to try to organize in the online advertising space. And he's, he's been a, a fixture ever since. He's done, um, moved on. He went the uh, email service provider coalition. You may be familiar with that. And then for the last several years, Trevor has been devoted exclusively to the um, IAPP, where he is well known on both sides of the Atlantic, both in Washington and, and Brussels. But he's also more famous in uh, his hometown of York, Maine, a beautiful town if you've never been there. So, Trevor, are you with us? I'm here, Bennett. And um, did, I, did I do you justice? You. <laughs> I, you made me blush. Thank you. <laughs> That's the benefit of radio, Trevor. Um, <laughs> so, Trevor, for those who aren't familiar with the IAPP, um, why don't you just give a, a quick um, 30-second um, description sure. of what it is? Sure. So the IAPP is the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And we represent uh, 9,000 members in 70 countries around the world. And our members are part of an emerging profession. It's the profession of privacy. So certainly all of the chief privacy officers of the world belong to the IAPP. Um, but so do lawyers who work in the field of privacy, technologists who work in the field of privacy, consultants, and others. Uh, and in many ways, we're unremarkable. We are a professional association, like many professional associations. 
Um, most states have uh, associations for dentists and accountants and lawyers. Um, there are many national associations as well. What makes us different is that we cover a profession that is only about as old as, as we are old, which is to say uh, about 11 years, um, and that the issue we cover is this incredibly hot and dynamic topic of privacy. So we do all the things that you would expect a professional association to do. We run large conferences. We have many, many publications. Uh, we have local chapters that meet and network with each other. And we also run a certification program, the CIPP, Certified Information Privacy Professional, uh, which helps people uh, demonstrate their knowledge and capabilities in the field of privacy. So it's safe to say you're not the oldest profession by a long shot. <laughs> well, we are not, thankfully. <laughs> now, I, I imagine you know, the whole term um, chief privacy officer um, you know, that has only been on the scenes now probably for about a decade, if not even less. Yeah, that's, um, um, that's about right. We've, we actually have done some research on this. And to uh, the best of our knowledge, we think that Jennifer Barrett, who is the chief privacy officer at Axiom, was the first chief privacy officer with that title in the U.S., um, We've tracked that back to about 1993, 1994. However, it is important to note that the idea of people working on privacy as a concept has been around for, for about 30 years. Um, it existed in Germany about 30 years ago, um, and uh, people certainly were doing it from a legal perspective, from a Capitol Hill perspective, in the 1970s, people like Alan Weston, Bob Belair, Ron Plesser, they were all working on privacy uh, all the way back into the 70s. Well, also the whole concept of you know, the right to privacy in Brandeis is almost practically a century old. It is uh, 120 years old now. It was in the 1890s that uh, Brandeis and Warren published a famous article called The Right to Privacy in the Harvard Law Review, and it called for exactly that, a right to privacy. That concept has changed and migrated and mutated a bit uh, over the years, but certainly we look back to that as, um, as some of the foundational work in, uh, in this field. Now, you talked about Axiom having you know, the first privacy officer. You know, in terms of your membership, uh, I imagine it's grown exponentially just because the profession seems to be growing exponentially. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Let me give you some metrics to, to help demonstrate that. We're at just under, just a tad under 9,000 members right now, 8,900 or so. Um, in the last six months, we have added 1,000 members, um, wow. which I, I think is an indicator of, of the rate of growth that we have. But here's an even better indicator in my mind. Um, in, uh, on January 1st of 2009, we had 5,000 members. On December 31st of 2010, uh, we had just about 7,500 members. Now, that 24-month stretch represents some of the worst economic uh, times, uh, certainly in our lifetime and, and in many, yes. many generations, in fact. Yet the IEPP over that 24-month stretch grew 50% in membership. And while uh, we here at, at, at the IEPP, our, our team here, like to think that um, some of that has to do with our great management and, and, and running of the organization, I think but the of majority course. of it we have to look at as being due to the issue of privacy just continuing to explode. So even in the worst economic times that we have seen for decades upon decades, the IEPP was growing at an annual rate of over 25%. And, you know, in, in those type of economic conditions, that's when corporate budgets squeeze um, dues for things such as your organizations. I mean, that's one of right. the first things to always get cut. And so yeah, to, it, to experience growth in is. that time, so it's that's, that's remarkable, remarkable. really, that, um, that privacy continues to be funded. And, and I think what it speaks to is just how difficult, how dynamic, how multifaceted and unstable this field is when um, uh, when a, a CFO, a CEO, a chief compliance officer, anyone responsible for risk management within an organization looks at the field of privacy today, particularly if their company has a significant use of data, 
they see enormous risk. And not only do they see enormous risk, it's emerging from class action lawsuits, from enforcement actions by the FTC and the state AGs and other agencies. Um, there's global risk from enforcers, uh, uh, regulators around the world. Um, but they also see uh, an inherent and, and intrinsic instability in the field right now. So it's not the type of thing that you can solve just by getting some good legal advice and instituting a new process or two. Um, it really takes a very sophisticated professional to assess all of the risk factors in the marketplace and try to come up with the safest passage through those choppy waters. Um, so it is a, a, a very dynamic and turbulent time. You know, our first um, our first episode ever, you know, when we debuted, we had Chris Olson um, from the FTC on, and he talked about you know, the whole roundtables that the FTC had and, and their initial draft report. Um, but an important point he stressed was the whole concept of privacy by design. And I would, I would think that you probably would very much agree with that since that would seem to be uh, one of the goals of the, of the profession. Yeah, so privacy by design is a concept that um, makes a lot of sense when you describe it. Of course, the devil is in the details. Um, it's, it's pretty simple to say that we believe in privacy by design. I think uh, our, our members are finding that it's a lot more challenging to actually make that kind of stuff happen in an organization. Uh, and that's not because it's a bad idea or it's not workable. That's because this work is hard. So privacy by design at its heart is a concept that says bake privacy into your products and services and technologies. Don't bolt it on later. It is much cheaper um, and much more efficient, better for you to consider privacy as you are building something than to try to retrofit privacy into a product or a tool or a service later on. Now, that takes on many, many, many um, uh, uh, dynamics. It has many different angles that you have to consider. And um, I think the most important thing that's coming out of privacy by design, which I should note is, is tremendously championed by um, Anne Kavukian, who is the Privacy Commissioner of Ontario. And uh, her website, actually, on privacy by design is a great resource for this. Um, the the thing that we are seeing that is perhaps the most helpful is that our members are being invited into those product development conversations earlier in the process. So we have members that have uh, governance mechanisms so that a privacy review occurs before any new feature is added to a product. And that's not to say that privacy becomes a barrier. That's to say that privacy is a fundamental consideration of their product design, and they want to make sure that it is at least considered um, in every new product feature. Many times, it's a real quick check mark because there's no data being used or there's no sensitive data being used or the use of the data is already well within the, the policies and the laws that may apply to that data. But in other cases, it's important to think about how privacy may um, have, uh, have an effect on, uh, on what your organization is doing. Now, it seems that um, nowadays practically every issue involving the Internet on Capitol Hill is, is privacy-related, whether it's the, um, the mobile um, phone tracking, geo-tracking, or whether it's the adequate security um, or down to you know, the, right now the, the hot-button items of do not track. And um, the, the one thing I've always pondered is to what extent can Congress really tackle this issue given that there's so many interests involved and um, it's such a broad area, and, but there does seem to be some consensus developing. And so do you think this might actually be a year where we might actually see something happen on Capitol Hill? Gosh, it is really tough to handicap um, uh, bills on Capitol Hill, particularly given that Congress has a lot of other things going on with, um, uh, with, with debates over budgets and, and tax reform and, and health care and other things. However, uh, we are certainly seeing as much, if not more, activity on privacy-related bills than we have ever seen before. Um, uh, we are seeing, I, I think, more sophistication and maturity in some of those bills. Now, you mentioned a few hot-button issues, do not track. 
um, uh, mobile uh, devices and location-based privacy. Social media is hot as well. Uh, privacy in youth, that's hot as well. Um, one of the challenges that we have in today's world is that technology is advancing so quickly that public policy has a tough time keeping up. And so it's difficult for us to wrap public policy around the technologies that are delighting us with the way they use our data, but also challenging our, our, our thinking about privacy. Congress has a tendency to look at that um, in, in a very immediate way. And that can be a, that can be a troubling way or, or a challenging way to look at things. If you are only responding to the technology that came out two or three months ago, um, then you're always sort of chasing the tail of the issue. And I think there are some in Congress and certainly uh, some in the FTC and Department of Commerce who are thinking more broadly, what, what might a fundamental approach towards privacy look like? And that's, that's marching under the banner of, of things like privacy by design, also projects like the Accountability Project, which is being championed by the Center for Information Policy Leadership, where th there is a new type of thinking about how we might, in a, in a broad manner, address concerns associated with data. But let me just add one twist to all of this. I, I would sure. say that I am generally less than optimistic um, about the, the possibility for a bill to pass this year. And these are my thoughts alone, of course. Um, but, but there is the, the, the constant threat of a very large data breach resulting in very significant harm and that leading to quick congressional action on, on a privacy bill. Um, the other possibility is the passage of a... Of, of, a, a troubling privacy bill by a state, and as a result, um, the call for federal preemptive legislation uh, gets even more significant and the law gets passed quicker. So there are a couple of variables at play that may change my pessimism, my lack of optimism about the chance for a, a congressional bill to pass. Um, but generally, I think it is a promising indicator that we see a more mature, a, a more seasoned discussion occurring right now and an effort to try to move away from chasing the tail of the latest technology and move towards broader ways to think about how do we actually manage this in the marketplace. So, for example, if you know Governor um, Deval Patrick in Massachusetts um, improperly disclosed Paul Revere's employment records, um, you might see Congress react. Uh, it, it, I... I think that's right, yeah. A major breach, a major state law, a major harm in the marketplace. Sometimes we call it the Exxon Valdez moment, right? Right, everyone's uh, waiting for that. And then they, and yeah. it's, been, it's been theorized that we've been there, but it seems to have passed. You know, I, and you raise a good point, Bennett, because um, uh, we have, uh, many of us in the field have been saying, oh, just wait for that Exxon Valdez moment, and then we'll see legislation. Um, uh, someone a bit cynical might say, wait a minute, how many Exxon Valdez moments do we have to have before we have a response? I think if you look at the media over the last 18 months, we have seen issue after issue, breach after breach, you know, new use of a technology that raises major privacy concerns um, over and over and over again. And certainly some of the advocates are saying, whoa, time out. Now it is time for us to actually step forward and do something legislatively to put some controls in this in this field. Do do you think, and very briefly, because we're probably going to need to take a break soon, but do you think that there's a, a boomerang going on in that early on there was you know consumer apprehension about the internet, and then over time you know they grew comfortable with it and in an easier way in. But now with all the changes with social media and all the different things that are going on with you know the, the mobile, that there may actually be a, a retraction. That the consumers are, are actually now becoming wary again. Um, do you get a sense that that might be happening? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a fascinating question, and it's probably worth a, 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 an entire year of radio shows with you to examine <laughs> what consumers think about uh, about online privacy particularly. Um, let me just share a couple of things with you. One, um, 
there was an advocate at one of our conferences once, and he said something very thoughtful, and that was that um, Americans value privacy. They absolutely value privacy. The problem is, is that the value is 50 cents off a cheeseburger. Um, <laughs> and and if, we, if we take that into our broad experience on the web, um, you know, it was also said at one point that um, if you go to a website that you um, are not paying for a product, you are the product. And, and that's right, too, isn't it? We, we have an implicit understanding that there is a data exchange as we go around the web. Um, and sometimes that is very upfront and very obvious when you're actually handing over your data. Um, sometimes it's less obvious with things like online behavioral advertising and some of the targeting that exists in the marketplace today. I don't think it's possible to say that consumers have a single way of thinking about this. Alan Weston, one of the founding fathers of the study of privacy, um, has documented well that the American population actually exists on a bell curve when it comes to considerations towards privacy. Some are very, very fundamentalist in nature. They don't want their privacy violated and don't want their data shared. Some are more like, I sometimes think, college students on spring break. You know, they're not really thinking about consequences. But those are the two extremes. The big bulge in the middle, the bell curve of, of privacy um, in terms of consumer response to privacy, are what Alan Weston calls privacy pragmatics. And those are people who look at each request for data as a value exchange. And if they think they're getting enough back, they're willing to give up the data. Um, and I think we're seeing tension in that value exchange in the marketplace today. Some organizations step too far, some technologies step too far, and consumers say, stop, that's enough. We don't want you using our data in that way. Others provide enormous delight in, in how uh, um, the people experience their product or service, and the data is just not an issue in that context. I think there remains... Um, lots and lots of tension and lots of conflict in the years ahead. In fact, I don't see that tension changing. So um, uh, I, I guess it means lots of job security for privacy pros. Well, we're going to take a short break. But we'll come back to that tension and job security um, after these messages. Brasco? Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. If you're looking for a new multifaceted SEO and social media tool set, look for The Raven. Raven has the important tools that every internet marketer needs. Raven offers customized metrics for managing link building campaigns, social media campaigns, with campaign reporting and research tools that you can easily manage. Build up campaign performance for your clients and give your team the tools that will make them soar. If you want to increase your internet marketing revenue, look for The Raven. Go to raventools.com. That's raventools.com. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use certifiedknowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brad Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. SEO 101 on WebmasterRadio.fm. Catch us Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Search Engine Optimization Channel only on WebmasterRadio.fm. 
The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. Thank you for joining us if you just just, um, came in. Um, This is Bennett Kelly with the Cyber Law and Business Report, and we have with us um, Trevor Hughes. He is the president of the um, IAPP, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and we were just talking about some of the complexities and and trade-offs involved in privacy. Now, Trevor, we were talking um, earlier about prospects of privacy legislation here in the U.S., and the Internet is – last I checked, does not have a national boundary. And it seems that the EU also has some thoughts on where we should be going in privacy that appear to be going in a different direction. And I've been noticing with with some sense of of humor um, some of the reaction to the um, cookie directive that's going on over there. And um, have you been involved in that at all? Well, we've certainly been tracking it, yeah. So we've been, uh, we've been quite involved, actually. Those conversations are occurring all over the world right now, actually. And, um, you know, it, it seems that it, the, the, the EU wants to move to – let me back up. I remember when, uh, when behavioral targeting and, and privacy were first coming on, becoming an issue on Capitol Hill, um, you, you actually put together a model of – that have warned that what um, too much disclosures could do to a consumer experience. And I think he posited something of a, of a website visit where the consumer had 20 different pop-ups. And it, it, is that the direction the EU is going with their cookie directive? So, um, so let's cover the directive really quickly. Um, this is uh, a, a European Union directive um, which says that consent is required. Um, prior to the use of, of a technology like cookies. It actually says prior to the storing or collection of stored data on a computer. And, um, and that in and of itself raises some, some concerns over breadth. Um, so it's not just cookies, though. The, it, the, the, the regulators in Europe have been pretty clear on this point. It, it, it's things like locally stored objects with Flash, um, uh, any type of state management tool. Um, and one of the things that is, again, unclear is to what consent means. There was an early indication that browser controls may satisfy this consent standard. In other words, if you had configured your browser or had not configured the default settings on your browser away from where they were, you had, um, in a sense, a de facto consent to to whatever your browser was going to allow okay. come on to your system. Websites just became illegal due to a new law on cookies. If you're so if you were accepting cookies through your browser, you accept uh, you you were given consent. However, however, um, some regulators have said in the national implementation of this EU directive that that's not enough. The browser controls do not currently satisfy the standard. And so we end up with a situation, for example, in the U.K., where the information commissioner is saying consent means something more than just browser controls. What it means beyond browser controls is not entirely clear. One major agency in the the U.K. has put up a notice on the front page of their website. Now, this is a governmental entity, uh, mind you, that says, we use cookies on this site. To learn more about cookies, click here. And that's on the front page, so it's a little more obtrusive than, than uh, something in a privacy policy. Um, but, but it's not the concept of informed consent that some have been arguing for in this cookie context. Uh, I, I think that there is... Uh, well, that page actually again, has been criticized, too, the, because it doesn't explain what the cookie is up front. Indeed, indeed. It doesn't explain what the cookie is, and it also, you know, query whether that satisfies a, a consent standard. I think that there is tension here um, and friction, just like we have seen it in many other places. It is certainly the case that tools like cookies today are ubiquitous and used in, in great numbers on leading websites. So if you go to the front page of a leading newspaper website, say New York Times or Wall Street Journal or others, you're probably going to find over a dozen cookies on that page. 
query whether a standard like what we see in, in the EU today would require 12, 16, 20 different consents to occur um, in order for a user to actually get through to that page. And then one also has to ask whether any visitor to a website would have the ability to understand the difference between an analytics cookie and a, and a, and a tracking cookie for, um, uh, for ad-serving purposes and a, a traffic management cookie, um, an audit cookie, you name it. There are dozens of different types of cookies that might be set. Um, all of this adds up to, again, a situation that is incredibly unstable, and um, I think there is much work to be done. Um, and sadly, I think, um, the, the real focus here will probably be on enforcement. Um, and if it is unenforced in Europe, I think you will see likely significant noncompliance with this standard or people justifying their current practices through browser controls or notice in a privacy policy. If we see strong enforcement on this issue, um, I think we will see many, many organizations get very, very active in Europe to try and drive different or more workable standards. Because that's always been the big fear that there would be a great divergence between the United States and the EU on privacy. Yeah, I, I think there, I think there is a great divergence, and one of the challenges with privacy is that it is um, in the information economy something that needs to be managed globally, but is very much legislated, regulated, and enforced nationally. Um, and so you as an organization may have data that exists in, in dozens, uh, over 100 countries around the world, and you may have very differing privacy laws that affect that data um, around the world. Th th those differing standards exist today, um, and it is certainly the case that uh, European regulators claim jurisdiction over many of the practices of global multinationals in Europe, and it is certainly the case that some organizations are considering where to place things like data centers for cloud computing, where to place offshore, offshore business processing operations um, uh, because of data protection laws. Now, just uh, for the listeners, the way an EU directive works is the, uh, the European Union Parliament um, approves a policy or directive in this case and, and then it is up to the member states to pass implementing legislation. And so the um, EU cookie directive was to come into force um, this, this month, or actually May, May 2011. And only three countries had actually passed implementing legislation. I believe it was um, the UK, Denmark, and maybe Estonia or Latvia, one of those countries. And right. no other country has. And the, the, also there's such controversy over enforcement of the um, cookie directive that the EU is – excuse me, the, um, the UK has actually postponed enforcement for a year. And what do you think the UK is going to come out on that? Yeah, so um, I actually had the chance to listen to Christopher Graham, the information commissioner of the UK, um, in London two weeks ago. Um, uh, and um, he, he was pretty clear that, yes, there was a 12-month moratorium on active enforcement by his office on this topic. Um, now, he was also very clear, though, that flagrant violation of the standards that they had put forward um, would result in action. Uh, so they, they have a statutory requirement to respond to complaints to their office. And um, as a result, they would need to investigate something if a complaint was filed. So even though there is a 12-month moratorium in the U.K., at least from Information Commissioner Christopher Graham um, in the U.K., who is the regulator, the enforcer on this, uh, on this law, um, there's an indication that, that flagrant violation and uh, violations that are brought to light through, through the complaint mechanism in his office would nevertheless be investigated. Now, it's interesting. There's been some 
um, kind of vociferous reaction in the UK to it. Um, some people basically saying this is why people move their business to the US. Um, it's been called the Silicon Valley Full Employment Act. And, um, and some sites have actually tr- gone about complying by, to a level of absurdity. And uh, one site in particular, they had about a dozen different pop-ups, and uh, one of which uh, I, I, I made a copy of because it was so amusing. And it says, this site uses cookies because they are delicious, dunkable, and contain chocolate. Num, num, num. Do you agree that cookies are delicious? And you click OK or cancel. <laughs> That's great. That's great. You so, know, th- there is um, – I, I, on the one hand, we can, we can definitely look at uh, these public policy efforts and, and find the absurdity in them. Um, you know, nobody wants 16 pop-up boxes asking us, you know, for 16 different cookies – um, only one or two of which are from the site that we're actually visiting, you know, whether we want that cookie to be served on our system or not. Nobody wants that user experience. It would be terrible, and it would um, uh, certainly not make me happy on the web. On the other hand, um, I, I think these regulators are saying something important, and I think uh, particularly web-based businesses need to recognize that there is a countervailing concern associated with privacy and that there have been challenges to the transparency of these practices in the past. And whether you agree or not with those challenges, they are getting more broad-based, louder, and getting more support in major public policy circles. So you ignore them um, or or, um, uh, avoid them at your peril, I think. That's not to say that that every organization needs to step up and put up 16 pop-up boxes on their site. I'm I'm not aware of anyone that's really doing that yet. Um, but it does mean that you've got to get smart people in your organization who can understand all of the different actors at play, all of the different issues, the competitive dynamics with, your, with the companies that you, you compete with in the marketplace, the regulatory and enforcement dynamics associated with all the jurisdictions you're in, all of the various laws that may play out. Um, and your own business model and how that intersects with all of those things and provide a really good risk management analysis so that you can move forward in a way that um, uh, that reduces your risk to the greatest extent possible um, while at the same time not putting you at a competitive disadvantage. Let me tell you one thing that I heard at, at another one of our conferences. This actually came from Justin Weiss, who is the International Privacy Officer for Yahoo!, um, and he said something that I think is incredibly true, and that is that there is good faith in hard work. Um, and what he meant by that is is that perfect compliance is probably unattainable when it comes to privacy laws all around the world today. But that doesn't mean you can ignore it. And regulators will respect a significant effort, hard work, um, that is done in good faith uh, to move towards compliance. So uh, none of this is to say that you can stick your head in the sand and ignore what's happening in, in the privacy law world. What it is saying is that you actually have to work harder because um, in this era of um, increasingly difficult privacy standards, um, things like the EU cookie directive, um, you've got to be even smarter and spend more time working on these things. Well, we're going to take a short break, and um, when we come back, we'll be listening to Cyberlawn Business Report. Back to you, Brasco. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. As you know, being an expert at f- <gasps> What did she say? Requires lots of practice and a great tool. Think you could use some help with f***? Whoa. You're not alone. Hundreds have used our tool to take their f- performance to the next level. The language. Of course, we're talking about managing Facebook ads on Aquizio. Oh. Buy, track, manage, optimize, and report on media across all major ad networks. Visit Aquizio.com to get a demo today. Aquizio. Search, social, display, one platform. Hello, uh, Trevor. Yeah. Hi, it's uh, George. Uh, it's Brasco and Bennett. Uh, just wanted to go and check and see how everything's going for you. You're sounding great. 
wanted to know if uh, I better wanted to ask you if you wanted to go and continue on. We have about fifteen minutes left on the program. If you're up to it, uh, we'd be happy to keep you on. Oh, what the heck! I'll do it. Sure. Okay. Excellent. Thank you, Trevor. Hang on, uh, we'll be back in just a few moments. I can't because I've clicked on the Ustream link and I'm getting, hey Dave, spit it out, hey Dave, spit it out. I've spit it out. Echo, yeah, it's echo, echo, down. echo, it's echo, echo, down echo, now. echo, echo. It's down, it's down. I turn off the volume. <laughs> Didn't work. I turned off Ustream. <laughs> that fixed it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Only on webmasterradio.fm. Our clients have earned over $1 billion. Now it's your turn. With over 20,000 products to promote across a huge variety of niches, ClickBank provides countless ways for any affiliate to make money. You can promote any product immediately. No contracts required. Looking for recurring commissions? Upsell products? ClickBank's got them. And best of all, you can make up to 75% commissions. Ready to become the next ClickBank success story? Sign up now for free at ClickBank.com. Life tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life Tips, Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Entertainment Channel, only on webmasterradio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and uh, we're glad to have Trevor Hughes um, staying on with us for the, the second segment. And uh, Trevor, you, you've been involved in this area for a long time, and you, you, you're head of an organization devoted towards um, privacy professionals. What, what are some ways um, businesses can reduce their risk in this area? So, so far, we've been talking about all of the risks that exist for businesses. We've talked about how, um, uh, how incredibly dynamic and turbulent and unstable the field of privacy is. And um, the, the bad news that I have to share is that there is no silver bullet to make this better. Uh, there's not a law, there's not a technology, um, uh, and, and although some consultants may want to try to tell you this, there's, there's not a single program or process that you can put in place. Uh, it, it really is hard work, and it really does require um, a person or, or a team of people um, who can pay attention to all of the things in play um, and come up with the safest path forward for your organization. Now, that takes on many forms. Um, certainly, uh, you should be thinking about a privacy officer or a privacy professional, someone responsible for privacy in your organization, if you are of any significant size at all. But additionally, even if you're just a tiny web startup, you should be giving someone that responsibility in your organization so that they've got their name next to it um, and, and, and take accountability for it. Um, and that is even more the case when data is the lifeblood of your organization. So giving someone responsibility is the first step. Um, but then beyond that, you've got to make sure that they know what they're talking about. And I think that's where organizations like the IEPP come in, you know, making sure that they are part of the knowledge stream created by um, our professional association, by the privacy field, um, that's a big step. Uh, we have a free daily newsletter that highlights the top privacy stories around the world each day. That's called the Daily Dashboard, and it's available on the front page of our site, privacyassociation.org. Um, but we also have large conferences where we bring people together. Uh, we've got uh, one happening in San Francisco tomorrow and Friday, uh, and then uh, others happening in Atlanta and Boston next week. And then a very large conference coming up in Dallas in September. Lots of information on all of that on our site. Um, and then perhaps most importantly is to consider uh, credentials in the field. Uh, 
uh, as I mentioned before, we offer the Certified Information Privacy Professional, which is the only privacy certification in the marketplace today. It is global. We have thousands of people certified around the world. Um, and many organizations are finding that you know, not just the privacy officer should have that type of designation, but actually hundreds of people inside the organization, anyone who touches data as, as a significant part of their job, um, probably needs to have enough awareness so that they don't make a dumb mistake. And how many times have we seen in the media recently um, innocent, dumb mistakes causing enormous privacy concerns for organizations? So the long story cut very, very short here is um, the best way to reduce risk is the hard way, and that is um, get people in to do the very hard work of paying attention to how your organization handles data, what kind of data you have, how you store it, where you store it, who you share it with. Um, and that kind of person requires a special type of knowledge, and, um, and I'm happy to say that that body of knowledge, that field of study is growing quite significantly, and the IAPP is one of the places where that's happening most notably. Now, you know, I'm, I'm active in the California Bar on the Cyberspace Committee, and you know, this, the California Bar is looking into creating a certification for privacy. You know, there, are, there are a number of areas where uh, the California Bar allows you to designate yourself as an expert, and they are looking into privacy as that was being a potential field. Are there any other states that are looking into doing that at the bar level? So I'm not aware of uh, other states. It's actually wonderful to hear. I wasn't aware that the California Bar was considering that. Um, I'm not aware of other states that are considering that. But what I can tell you when it comes to the legal profession um, is that um, there is a, a real move afoot for large uh, law firms to actually have a full-blown privacy practice. And some of those privacy practices are getting pretty big. 10 to 20 lawyers within the organization, within the firm, actually working full-time on data protection and privacy issues around the world. That's remarkable. I mean, that's a real change in the past 10 years. And it's, it's certainly the case at the highest level of law firm. You know, those large global firms uh, definitely have dedicated practices to privacy and data protection. Um, but I think you'll see over time that most uh, um, sort of, uh, multi-practice firms have somebody in the firm who's picking up data protection and privacy. Um, otherwise, people, organizations, clients, companies are going to have to go elsewhere to find those those services. So um, uh, we're definitely seeing it gain traction in the legal field. Yeah, one thing that's interesting, uh, and I, I probably should have done this at the start, when we talk about privacy, um, we're not just talking about the, the privacy in, in, as it's generally thought of. We're also talking about security. Because the FTC, when, they, when half of their privacy enforcement actions are really security enforcement actions, not providing adequate security you know, for what, what is generally considered private information. And um, you know, there have been some recent, very recent enforcement actions that actually give some extensive detail as to what the FTC considers sufficient um, levels of, of security that I, I recommend um, your listeners to check out because – you know, it, it, it may not be what you're currently practicing, and it may not be what you've assumed. Yeah, I, I think you raise a very important point, Bennett, and um, there are uh, a few things, I guess, to say about it. One, um, the word privacy and security um, get interchanged pretty easily in, in the marketplace and in the media. And so when uh, the media talks about a privacy violation, sometimes they're talking about a security breach. Um, now, that's not to say that that, that distinction um, uh, is, is paramount and, and, and we should ignore those stories because in the popular mind, in, in, in the broad uh, um, societal mind out there, when a security breach occurs, the first risk, the first concern is a privacy risk. And so with breaches at Sony or Epsilon, um, it is described in the popular press as a privacy concern, uh, and we need to pay attention to, to that. And you're absolutely right that there have been a number of FTC enforcement actions over the years, um, over the past 12, 15 years, actually, that do talk about 
um, information security and give a fairly significant amount of guidance on what reasonable security means. But there's also been privacy enforcement actions. Um, uh, There is a proposed Google Buzz settlement out right now, which the FTC, uh, Chairman Leibowitz, has indicated may be a framework and architecture for um, for future enforcement actions and also for the FTC's approach to privacy generally. So that's required reading, I think, for anyone who cares about this stuff. Um, And it is absolutely true that when we see a security breach, Well, the breach is the technological infiltration of a company's systems. Um, The data being used later is is a privacy concern. The identity theft, um, the fraud that occurs after the fact, that absolutely is a privacy concern. And so we're seeing now that chief privacy officers actually have to work very closely with chief security officers or chief information security officers in their organizations and make sure that their policies, their practices are really joined at the hip. Well, Trevor, it's been a pleasure having you. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, Trevor used Mr. Privacy himself, and I hope you consider joining us again, and and I hope to see you in the future in IAPP event. For those of you who haven't gone, the, um, the global summit that happens in the spring in Washington is a very productive session and Nothing's better than being in Washington in spring. So, Trevor, thank you for joining us and for being a sport and staying on. Um, very briefly, one we didn't get to cover some of the, the five essentials, but there is one topic I wanted to cover, and that is if you may have read that um, France has imposed a new restrictive ban on the use of words such as Facebook and Twitter in French media. And instead, they want you to say um, social media or um, Risu socio, as um, my my belabored French would say, and so I I think it's only fitting that, to the extent that the French are going to um, be um, chauvinistic about um, the use of those terms, that we may want to apply a similar standard to France. So I was suggesting something along the lines of uh, a Gallic nation of um, headbutter soccer players instead of using the word France. Um, but Brasco, if you had any other suggestions, I- I'd welcome them. But in the interim, um, let's 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 see how long we can get along without using um, France until France starts using the word Twitter and Facebook. Brasco, any suggestions? I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> so, um, well, thank you all for joining us. Um, it's it's been a pleasure having you, and we appreciate your comments on the chat room. Um, look for uh, an updated um, cyber report, which is the newsletter of the Internet Law Center, um, which we publish um, you know, basically monthly. And some of the issues that we talked about today will be covered in that newsletter. And um, it will be on, um, on our blog, um, ilccyberreport.wordpress.com. Again, this is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center in Santa Monica. Um, you're home for Internet law and um, business. And hope you'll join us next week on Cyberlawn Business Report. Court to church. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.